This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 145th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio.world. My special guest today is former Seattle Mariners player and current Seattle FM 93 KGR Sports Radio morning host, Bucky Jacobson. Bucky, I'll get back to you in a minute. My podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbean, and you can go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage my listeners to click the like button and regard my show. And of course, only positive comments. But um, anyway, you can also check out my show by just Googling Sports Untold YouTube. And you can watch some of the video and audio versions. My producer is Lydia Coyne. She's doing a great job, UW student. All right, Bucky, we get back to you. Bucky Jacobson has had, had a very impressive 2004 season with the Seattle Mariners. Became something of a local legend with the, the numbers, batting numbers he was putting up that year during the Mariners' 04 season. Bucky played in the minor leagues for several years. Bucky is now the host, as I mentioned, the Chuck and Buck morning show on Seattle's KGR 93.3 Sports Radio. Bucky also runs a baseball facility called Bucky's Baseball Academy. He coaches um, some select baseball teams. Bucky, thank you for coming on the Sports Untold podcast, also on Radio Outer Radio. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, yeah. Glad we finally get hooked up. You've uh, We contacted, I don't know how long ago, that we t- kind of touched base. And life is busy, right? I mean, doing the morning show. Uh, I don't do the baseball academy thing anymore. It just was too much trying to okay. Okay. trying to do the morning show in the morning and then coach kids in the afternoon or into the evening. And then I have a couple kids myself, Baron and Grace. Oh, yeah. Got to have, have time for them. So, um yeah, I'm not doing that anymore, but you're right. I did that for about a decade and and yeah, we've been touching base. I don't know how for how long and it was I was def- definitely wanting to get on here, do this with you and, and I'm glad that we're finally getting the chance. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're a busy guy. Thank you for amending your biography. Uh people's people oh, good. in life and so but we'll well, Bucky, today I want to talk about your career and, and baseball, of course, and just uh some of your thoughts on on sports issues, maybe a couple things beyond sports as well. Um, well, Bucky, here's my customarily an early question I ask guests. Uh, why don't you just kind of tell us how you got the baseball and sports bug as a kid growing up in Oregon, I believe. Yeah, I grew up in Oregon. Um, kind of a, a big family, a blended family. Uh, my mom and, and stepdad, he's officially my stepdad, but he's the one that was there from, shoot, the time that I can remember from from probably before I was one year old. And, and um, he had uh, a couple daughters from his previous marriage and my mom had myself and, and my sister and they got together and, and, and basically it was kind of one of those things where both uh, they played sports. I mean, my mom and him, they played softball. Um, and I think it was more than anything. It was like the idea of you're going to do something to keep you busy. Right. I mean, there's a, obviously a physical benefit of going out and playing sports, but the idea of not having a bunch of just free time to get into trouble or do something else, I think was something that was, a uh, it is advantageous even to this day. And, and my parents were basically like, you're going to do something. You're not going to just have a bunch of idle time. And, and so sports was the easy Avenue. And so, yeah, I, I, I jumped at it. I mean, from the early age, I remember playing soccer, you know, back when, everybody just chased the ball around um you know it wasn't really soccer per se other other than the fact that we were trying to kick it um and then growing up 
you know, playing little league and, and going and spending a lot of time at softball fields, watching my older sisters play softball, my parents play softball, um, watching them, you know, my older siblings start to play basketball. And I was like, well, I want to do that. Right. When I'm old enough, I want to do that. And so it was really following in my sister's kind of footsteps of, well, that's what they do. And that's something that my parents obviously were promoting or, or encouraging is you're going to do something. There was, you're not going to just sit around and, you know, at that time, it was probably even before video games. But once video games came out, it was definitely one of those. If you think you're going to sit around and sit, play Super Mario all day, uh, you got another thing coming. You'll, we'll find some yard work uh, for you to do if you don't want to go join basketball or wrestling or soccer or baseball, whatever it is. So just kind of seemed like the thing, you know, it wasn't uh, there wasn't a, an idea behind it of taking it and running with it or it turning into anything. It just was the thing that all my friends did and my siblings did and, and my parents encouraged. What was baseball your first love, Bucky, growing up? Um, I would say, you know, to be honest, when I first started playing everything, I don't, I don't know if I really, I loved every one of them when that season started, you know, and it was like, Hey, basketball starts you know, next week. I was so excited. Couldn't wait. Right. One, I would get a new pair of shoes. Uh, so that was cool that I could only wear in the gym. Right. So you don't get them all dirty. And, and they made nice squeaky noises on the gym floor. That was cool. Um, but it was like that it was it was new. Right. And it was like, boom, and you're playing and it might last for two months. And and then it was like, oh, hey, baseball season starting. Well, where's my glove? Uh, I don't know. Probably under your bed where you put it at the end of the season before. And so I'd find it and couldn't wait for baseball season and then football or soccer, whatever it was. It was, I don't remember having a, I'm really drawn to this one. You know, I don't remember having that necessarily. Um, I know as I got older, um, say probably junior high, high school, when more started to be asked of you, more was expected from the coaches, like the work ethic, you, you, you're going to work at this, right? Like, you're going to run hard and you're going to do this and you're going to exert a lot of effort, not just go out and play. When I was seven and eight, nine, you just, you're playing, even in an organized sport. Once it got to where coaches are demanding that you go out and actually put in the effort necessary to learn and to figure it out, then, um, uh, sorry, somebody's trying to call me. I don't want to talk to you. Sorry about that. Um, so anyways, I, once it got to that point, um, then putting the work in on a sport, um, I did start to find that baseball was the one that I enjoyed the work more. You know, I loved football games. I hated football practice. Um, I was a swimmer. Believe it or not, my best sport probably in high school was swimming. I loved racing in meets. I hated swimming practice. I, you know, it just... Whereas baseball was the one that I enjoyed taking batting practice. I enjoyed taking fly balls. I enjoyed uh, practicing base running. I enjoyed every aspect of it. And so uh, basically, you know, it when the decision came, do I want to go play football or do I want to try to continue to swim at the collegiate level or what do I want to do? I kind of thought I had four more years, two maybe because uh, – or four, you know, um, more years of playing. And I figured if I'm going to, if that's the end of my career as an athlete, baseball is the one that I would want to do. I wasn't necessarily thinking beyond college. 
Well, speaking of college, Bucky, you attended Lewis Clark State College. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about that college and your college baseball career? Oh, well, that's where um, that was a turning point in my in my life, not just in my baseball life, but in life in general. I mean, I had a wonderful home life and upbringing and supportive parents and pain in the butt sisters but i love them to death and and yet when it came to the ability to excel in sports i i i didn't know what was needed to do that i had no clue what what it would take to do that and um i went to two years of junior college at blue mountain community college before i went to lewis clark state okay i walked on at blue mountain um lucked out and I worked hard enough that when somebody else wasn't eligible grades wise, and so their their scholarship for the next term became available, I had worked hard enough that the coach he's he's gone now, um, the late Greg Schwerzy, he says, uh, hey, hey, you know what? Maybe not the most talented, maybe not the most gifted, but the hardest working guy this fall was been Bucky, and so you've earned the winter term um, a scholarship which was great. I mean, it's not, a, it's great in, in practice, essentially. It, it didn't, I mean, I think the tuition was $700 a term. It wasn't like it was saving a ton at that point, but I'm sure that even the 700 bucks, my parents were appreciative. So well, it's an honor to get it as well. So yes, it was, that's, that's what I mean in principle. The, the fact that I got something because I had worked hard was more important than the actual money that it saved. Um, Again, that's easy for me to say. It wasn't my seven hundred dollars that it saved. So my dad might have something else to say about that. But sure. um, so I went there, and I wasn't good. I was—I mean, I wasn't great by any stretch. I—I I didn't play a ton my freshman year. Um, sophomore year, I did play. Uh, I made—I went to the all-star game, which I don't think I was really an all-star, but I think every team had to have a representative. So I was the guy that got to go. Um, and it just so happens that. I threw out a couple guys from right field in an inning and Ed chef was the coach at Lewis Clark state was there at that all-star game. And that is a moment like that inning. When I threw out a couple people was the difference between me playing beyond college and really? not. Wow. Yeah. That because he saw me and he also saw me strike out looking, which is his biggest pet peeve. And one of my biggest pet peeves to this day, um, so he wasn't impressed with my hitting by any stretch, but he he was impressed with I was a big guy at that time. I was probably six three, six four, um, maybe two ten, and I had a big arm. I could I could I could throw it hard from right field, and so he he told uh, his assistant coach uh, Chad Miltenberger, who was a former player on his team that turned into a coach. He he said, "Hey, go after this guy, offer him." whatever the littlest scholarship that they could offer is, which was, I think, out-of-state tuition and and see if you'll come here with the idea of, and I don't know this at the time, with the idea of bring this guy in if, I mean, his approach at, to playing baseball is atrocious, but if I can tear him down, if he can handle me breaking it down and basically getting him to realize what you think you know about baseball is wrong, if he can handle that, then I can build him up and he might be a good player. If he can't handle it, we'll throw him on the mound and let him throw hard. That's basically what I found out from him years afterwards. So I had the opportunity to go to Lewis Clark state as a hitter and 
Oregon State was offering me a scholarship as a pitcher. Oh. And this is before Oregon State was really the, you know, kind of powerhouse that they are now. Um, but Casey, the coach, I, I had asked him, I said, hey, you know, I'll go D1 versus NAI. I said, is there any chance I can come there and hit and pitch? And he goes, son, this is Division One baseball. You're, you're the pitcher, you hit. That's crazy now. We have Shohei Otani doing what right. he does in the big right. leagues. Not right. that I was Shohei Otani, by the way, but uh, back then, you know, it was just you played one or the other. There wasn't two-way players. And so, again, going back to the idea of I kind of thought, at this point, I'm done with two years of junior college. I kind of thought I had two more years of baseball is what I thought. I did not think professional baseball was – it wasn't even on my mind. Not only did I not think it was realistic, I didn't even think about it. So I thought, I got two more years. Do I want to pitch or do I want to hit? And I wanted to hit. And so I chose to go to an NAI school and hit versus going to um, a Division One school and pitch. And thank God I did because I went there and he – Ed Chef, I've said this many times, and I'll stand by it until my dying days. I, my mom and dad are the most important people in my life, and Ed Chef is third, and everybody else is a distance behind those three. And um, he changed the way that I thought about playing baseball, but also the way that I thought about myself, the way that I, I thought that I worked hard before, and I came to realize that that isn't really hard work, and Hard work is doing, working hard at stuff you're not good at. I used to work hard at things I was good at. You know, I like taking BP. I didn't like, you know, running. You know, I didn't like, I didn't like doing some of the things that didn't come as naturally or, or that I wasn't as good at. And so he taught me a lot. And obviously that organ, that program is known to be really good in NAI. And so we also won and we won a national championship. And so it taught me a lot about, the team aspect of going out and fighting for something and the objective being winning your last game of the season, winning the final game of the season and hoisting a trophy. And so that gave me something that I understood what you're really chasing when you're playing uh, a sport at the highest level. So yeah, I ended up going to LC and, and like, it wasn't the easiest path. There was all kinds of stories I could tell you about that guy and how he coached and, and how hard it was at times, but um, I wouldn't change it for the world because he, he uh, he turned a, a little boy into a young man and set me on a path that was going to give me an opportunity to pursue a dream that I didn't even know was realistic. But just for the listeners, Lewis Clark State College is not Lewis and Clark University in Portland, correct? Right. Yeah. This one's yeah. in Lewis and Idaho. Gotcha. Gotcha. Just want to make sure that everyone yep. understands that. Well, that that's I did not know, Bucky, that you started junior college. It's one thing I love about interviewing so much is just learning more than what Wikipedia says about somebody. It's always good to, right. to dive a little more. That's that's part of why, why I enjoy doing this. Bucky, uh, did I read that you studied social work when you were at, at Lewis Clark State College? And I want to know when I think of social workers, I think of people who are pretty good at talking over a problem with a friend. Are you a pretty good guy that can talk over a problem with a friend? Yeah. Yeah, it's always been a kind of a natural thing. I don't know when it started or why. It's something that I have always been pretty decent at. It, um, you know, there's those groups back at I think grade school or maybe it's junior high when it starts, where your peers will nominate someone that they would go talk to if you had a problem, right? You know, everybody takes a survey. If you had a problem that you couldn't go talk to a teacher, you didn't feel that you could go talk to your parents. 
who would you go to, right? And then whoever's name pops up, I don't know, the 10 most, then they ask you, hey, you were a name that was kind of nominated here. Would you be willing to have discussions about that, right? And so I just had, it wasn't some long, you know, program or anything, but I had a couple conversations with people where they, it was like they enlightened me that apparently some of my peers felt comfortable talking to me. Um, and at that point, it was when I went to junior college, I studied psychology. I just, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to study. I mean, to be honest, I was going to college because I wanted to play baseball, sure. you know, and, and yeah, and I'll learn, I'll kind of figure out what it is I'm going to study on in the meantime. When I went to Lewis Clark State, they didn't have a psychology program. And so social work was kind of the next closest thing and actually a little bit more my style than I wasn't wanting to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist or, you know, really other than that, there's not a whole heck of a lot other than being a, maybe like a college professor in psychology. There's not a ton of, of stuff in that career path. So social work is where I went. The unfortunate part was um, in, in doing that, schooling i realized i didn't want to be a social worker okay. um it's just because because i i do enjoy even to this day if a friend of mine has a problem uh or if even a friend of a friend i love talking through the problem and helping them look at it in a way that it's going to be easiest to tackle and figure out and and overcome but in social work you kind of have to pick a, a an area of of work that doesn't push your buttons like that doesn't wear you out right like take away from your life and there really isn't anything you know i i would love to help uh victims of domestic violence but there's a part of me that's going to want to go over to somebody's house and correct things as well right, well that's right, not going to work right. you know child protective services sounds right up my alley but i'm gonna have a hard time not being doing something i probably shouldn't to those that are needing to be away from their children so it just was one of those i don't know for sure if there's a thought for me in this and so luckily i didn't have to use the actual schooling um even though i use the things that i learned in in school i i i use those on a regular basis but well i like to to dive a little into nuggets about a person and i i saw that you were studying social work and i thought that was kind of interesting because I, I don't you don't really think of a lot of people in media that, that have a social work experience so it's kind of fun to, or sports me whatever but that's anyway that's neat that's neat uh Bucky you played in the minor leagues and you, you played triple a before you got to the big leagues um can you mention a couple well-known players you played the minor leagues with and how did you like the minor leagues lifestyle the travel and all that I think of like movies mm. is it Bull Durham or some of those movies with the minor league lifestyles is profiled. Um, so I got two questions about your minor league experience. Yeah. Um, the, the minor league experience is interesting. It's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's not, it's not glorious. It's not, um, you're not paid very well. I mean, I'll just tell you like my first paycheck playing in Ogden, Utah, 1997, two weeks into the season and you play every day pretty much. Um, my, my first paycheck was $316 for two weeks of work. So, I mean, that's not just below the poverty line. That's, I mean, you are broke. And so, but you're chasing a dream and they know that. And if you don't want to play, then 
fine. Now there's some guys that were drafted higher and got big signing bonuses. And so it doesn't really matter what their paycheck is. They have a million bucks or $10 million in the bank, whatever it might be. It, so it wasn't glorious, but to me, it was like, wait a second. Yeah. I'm a professional baseball player. Like you're going to pay me to play with the opportunity, obviously of climbing the ladder and maybe getting to the show. And, and, and everybody knows that there's pot, there's, some really big money potentially up there. So there was no part of me that was dwelled on any of the lesser than parts of the minor leagues. Uh, I just embraced it and, you know, 16 hour bus rides from Helena, Montana to medicine Hat, Canada, where the air conditioner breaks on the bus in mid August, you know, halfway into it. Like that wasn't enjoyable, but God, what a memory, you know, we're all stripped down to our boxer shorts, opening the exit windows on the side of the bus and the bus driver's getting mad at us, but whatever, we were hot. So um, the whole journey was filled with twists and turns. It wasn't easy. There's the politics that come into play in, in professional sports, especially baseball, because unlike other sports, there's a minor league system. And so you have to work your way up and working your way up is far easier if they've invested a $5 million signing bonus in you versus, you know, you know, some guys will get a bag of sunflower seeds and a bus ticket and say, hey, go get them. Right. You know, well, that guy really has to impress to get a promotion. And so I was kind of somewhere not in the middle. I was a seventh round pick. I got a $12,000 signing bonus. That's nothing compared to somebody that has, you know, there was guys getting $10 million signing bonuses at the time. And so I kind of had to prove myself. But I also, I was above, I shouldn't say above, I don't mean it in that way, but um, investment wise to the Milwaukee Brewers organization, I was, I had a more of a standing as a prospect than some of the guys that were free agent signs that didn't get any money. So I had a little bit to stand on, but it wasn't going to be a yellow brick road paved to the big leagues by any stretch. So um, I knew that and that was fine. I was okay. I knew that I wasn't a polished product and I had a lot of work to do anyway. So I went to work and did it. And, um, it took a long time. You know, most people don't last that long in the minor leagues. Usually you're right. just kind of done. You don't make it in four or five years. There's a new crop of youngsters coming in every single year. So you end up getting pushed out. Like you, if you haven't made it up to the top and there's new guys coming in every year, there's a lot of people being forced out in, in that during that time. And, and yet I played for seven or eight years in the minor leagues and, and before I finally got my opportunity, but it was, you know, there was, there's a lot of memories. I mean, ultimately, I consider myself more of a minor league guy than a big league guy. I made it and I get to, you know, look myself in the mirror and say, I know I did it the right way. I didn't cheat. I didn't take anything. Um, but, you know, I didn't play a long time. Um, some of that's because of the injuries and, and whatnot. I don't think it's because of performance. But bottom line is I played way more in the minor leagues. And so when I think about my career, I think way more that's what I think about is those times, those bus rides, those guys, that feel of trying to achieve something individually, but as a team as well, that whole thing was, uh, was something else. I mean, it was just something you can't trade. You can't really put a price on it, even though, you know, that there, there was a price on it, a very cheap price as far as what it, what they had to pay to, for to give me that opportunity, if that makes sense. Um, and yet, as unfair as it seems in a, in a way, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, if somebody says, okay, you get to do this again, 
and nothing's going to change. You're still, it's going to be low pay. Uh, it's not going to be glorified and glorious the way that a lot of people think it is. It's going to take a long time. You're going to doubt whether or not it's ever going to happen. Would you do it again? And I'd say, yes, I'd still do it again. And who were a couple of well-known players you played the minor leagues with? Oh boy. Um, so I came up with the Brewers. Um, Ben Sheets was a first round pick that I played with a couple years in the minor leagues that went on to have a, a, a really good career. Um, let me think. Pretty um, yeah. What's that? That's a pretty big baseball name. Ben Sheets. Yeah. yeah. Ben Sheets. If you know baseball, yeah. People know Ben yeah. Sheets. I mean, it's, you know, there's the guys uh, big name wise. It was more, you know, I was with prospects and, and, suspects to be honest more often than not and and some went on to play i'm tr i'm really trying to think of who that i played with like that i actually spent any significant time with that would have like a bigger name than sheets or like a more illustrious career i mean the guys i played with you know that that you know there's some of those guys that went on but not a lot of guys that i came up with sure. um made it really made it or made it very long well, a lot of fans, a lot of like pretty good baseball fans don't realize how few minor league players ever get to big leagues. I mean, what is mm -hmm. it like? Maybe two or three percent or something. I mean, it's like, I don't have the numbers. It's really small, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's I don't know what the numbers are, but it's yeah. it's small. I mean, you can just figure baseball has been around for however many years, what, 100, 150 years. And I think there's a little over 20,000 people total that have right. played in the big leagues. I mean, it's. Yeah, I you know, I've seen pyramids before, you know, stats or you know, pictures of of things where it's two percent of people that start playing little league will play high school baseball, and two percent of those people will play college baseball, and two two oh, yeah. percent of those will play professional baseball, and then it's something ungodly that it's like point two percent of those people will play in the big leagues. It's it's just a tough road to go. I mean you know, you can think about there's 30 teams and there's 26 guys on every roster, 25 when I played. But but really, it's, you know, by the end of my career, I was a first baseman in DH. Well, that means there's, there's 30 first basemen at the big league level and 15 DHs. That's 45 positions in the world right. that I can try to get. And then you got to go, okay, well, Edgar Martinez kind of has one locked down and Jim Tomey has one locked down. Yeah, and so sure. you start looking around, you're like, there's, you know, there might be 15 opportunities. Well, now you got to compare yourself against the prospects in that organization already and everybody else that's in your same situation, which is in AAA, knocking on the door, trying to get that opportunity. And sometimes you might be – the opportunity might be there, but you might not be in the right. You might not be in an organization where the opportunity is in your organization and they own you for the rest of that year or for six years when it was at the beginning. So there's so much that goes into it that you just kind of have to somehow put your head down and realize, recognize, and just, just deal with it that it's not fair, but life isn't fair. And what are you going to do about it? Pout, you know, bitch and moan about, oh, this isn't fair and I should have been up and I'm better than that guy or, or you're just going to keep your nose to the grindstone and just don't quit. And, you know, I, I think a lot of guys, unfortunately, do quit before before it comes to fruition and it maybe never would have, but you never know if you end up quitting before 
they take it away from you. You're in a small fraternity of people actually made the major leagues. That, that That's really a neat part of your life and career. Bucky, your 2004 season, I've been a Mariners fan since 77, growing up in Seattle. I remember it well. You had nine home runs. You were getting a lot of local media coverage. You, you're sort of portrayed, Bucky, almost as the potential next Babe Ruth. I mean, you were getting a lot of, this Bucky Jacobson guy is going crazy. He's a home run hitter. He's got that big, big guy. And, and you're, it was really a... a a fun time for fans. Um, tell us about that that time and how did it affect you when you were kind of perceived as maybe the next big slugger? Um, tell us about that period in your life in that 2004 season. Um, well, it was, you know, kind of along the lines, piggybacking on what I was talking about before. Of sometimes it just seems like it's not going to happen. And what are you going to do, right? You, you cash in your chips and, you know, go on your merry way. And I, I kind of knew that the end was – the end was coming, right? Like the, I wasn't going to be able to be, you know, I was 28 years old at the time. I, you don't see guys that are 32, 33 years old playing triple A baseball, right? Unless they're down there on a rehab assignment or something along those lines, you, they, they need that spot for someone that they figure is going to help the major league team that, that year and then years to come. And so your timeline, your window of being able to, be a big leaguer is only so wide and and eventually it closes and so i kind of knew that um my opportunity was the the sands of the hourglass were running out and so i spent that off season in tucson arizona and just grinding i mean i went to work and i was like i'm going to be able to go to bed every night when i'm brushing my teeth and look myself in the mirror and say nobody worked harder than i did today so I did that for a full season. I came in in really, really good shape. I had the opportunity to go to big league spring training with the Mariners, started the season in AAA, and and raked. I, I killed AAA. But again, I'm not a prospect. And John Olerud is playing first base in the big leagues, and Edgar Martinez is the DH. There's no part of me that's thinking, you know, I'm better than those guys. No part of me is thinking that. But I am – cognizant of the fact that neither one of them is young right and so you know even if i'm not going to be the dh for the next 15 20 years because i'm already 28 um i could see being the dh or the first baseman for the seattle mariners for five six seven years until whatever their next best thing is that comes up and and knocks me off the pedestal and so that was kind of my mission and my goal and unfortunately, the Mariners struggled a little bit, and I was doing well, and so they ended up releasing Olerud and bringing me up. And um, yeah, the the idea of a dream coming true is obvious, right? Like, a, wow, make the big leagues. The idea of, and I said this when I was back then, twenty years ago, um, there was dreams inside of that dream that were coming true that I never even dreamt. I never, I mean, yeah, the dream of playing in the big leagues came when all of a sudden I'm in maybe my junior senior college and scouts are talking to me like, Oh, maybe I could play pro baseball. And then you get into pro baseball. And you're like, huh, can I do this? And then you start thinking about it and you're like, yeah, I'm going to screw it. I'm going to go work my ass off and do it. But to finally achieve it is one thing, but to achieve it. And for example, I hit my first home run, uh, CC Sabathia. Edgar Martinez was on second base and he comes over to me afterwards in the dugout and 
ask me how I got that far inside of a pitch that was off the plate in. That's the best inside out right-handed hitter I've ever seen asking me how I did something that I watched him do my entire childhood. And that like, that's something that I can't even, if you would have told me 25, 30, 40 years ago that that was going to happen, I would have said, you're crazy. There's just no way that that type of thing can happen. So while my time in the big leagues was short, there is so many little things. I mean, getting to do it in Seattle, the team I grew up rooting for being teammates with Ichiro and Edgar Martinez um, was things that, you know, being my first game, being on my mom's birthday, there's so many little dreams inside of that big dream that came true that I couldn't even have, if you'd have told me, write the script, I wouldn't even have been able to add those details in. I wouldn't have thought that they were possible. Do you remember your first at bat in the big leagues, Bucky? Uh, yep. Yep. Um, I don't remember every pitch, like how the sequence went. I know I struck out. Um, it was Cliff Lee. Um, I think he blew, ended up beating me with a fastball, but he had me set up for a changeup. So it was one of the, you know, it was the first learning experience of, of there where um, I'd gotten to a place in the minor leagues and throughout playing those eight plus years in the minor leagues that, you're playing a chess match out there, right? Like I got him set up for this. And so I'm going to do it because he's set up for it. And then other times he's like, I got him set up for that. So I'm going to do this. Cause he think he knows I got him set up to do that, that whole thing. I'm a double think your triple think and can't triple stamp a double stamp, that type of nonsense it, that happens. And yet at the big league level in a short period of time, I mean, right off the bat, it was a situation where I remember thinking he's going sinker away. He's going change up. So see a pitch up that that you can drive. Don't chase something down that's sinking down and away like a changeup. And he throws a fastball. So it did exactly what it met my eyes the way that what my plan was. I'm like, oh, there's a pitch up. And I start to go and then whoop, it zipped past me because I was timing changeup, but looking up. He gave me a fastball up and, and blew it by me. But I ended up getting a knock off him. I think the next day be, and then he walked me a couple of times, which was a feather in my cap. I thought, because he was a guy that didn't walk very many guys. And so, you know, I, I, I felt very comfortable, even though I didn't start off my big league career with a home run or anything spectacular. It's definitely started off with a strikeout, but I, I had plenty of those. What was Cliff Lee one of the better pitchers you faced in the big leagues, Bucky? Um, He was good. I would say that I faced him before he was, Cy Young ish, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. When he was here, when he was in Seattle, or when he was uh even in Cleveland later on in Cleveland, when he got I mean, I think he had those streaks where he, you know, didn't walk a batter for 40 straight innings or whatever. He had some crazy numbers. He wasn't quite pitching like that at that point. The next day I hit my first home run. That was off CC Sabathia. He was oh. one of the better. I mean, yeah. that you know, guys that I played with, I have a hard time coming up with um names that you know, that were significant big league guys that I played with a lot, but guys that I faced, I mean, Mariano Rivera had the straight shove it where the sun don't shine most I've ever had done to me in a, in a bat. Like, yeah, I mean, there's, I, I faced, he's, he, what he did to me was just, I, not very many times did I run down to first base 
and think to myself, well, you had no chance. That was, uh, you had no chance on that one. Just go ahead and go sit down. And that's exactly what he did to me. And um, the crazy thing is Edgar Martinez had actually kind of given me a little tidbit as to that's what he might do now. Um, I was DH and Edgar was actually sitting the bench and he goes, Hey, just to let you know it. Sometimes now Mariano, you know, he's normally cutter, cutter, cutter. He sometimes the last couple of years, every once in a while to me, if he gets ahead of me with two strikes, he'll just throw a four seamer off the plate in, which sucks because you're expecting it to cut back over the plate and it doesn't and hits you right above your knuckles. So he told me that before the game and sure enough, he, he executed the way that Mariano Rivera does and sawed me off. I hit a, 27 hopper to third base and ran down to first with my hands stinging and thinking, well, that wasn't very easy. Well, the best relief pitchers in history, Mariano Rivera. Gosh, so he was one of the toughest pitchers you faced. Yeah. Lucky, uh, we're going to get into the Mariners and some other topics in a minute, but I, I, I like to make my show uh, biographical in part. Um, Bucky, kind of putting on your, your some of the training you've had as a social work, uh, a student studying social work, and the experience you had in 2004, after 2004 season, where, where unfortunately some injuries um, didn't allow you to continue as a major league player. What advice, Bucky, do you give athletes or another person whose career choices need to be adjusted because of an injury or unexpected event? Hmm. Well, there's a lot that goes into that, right? Because sure. that's funny. You just well, you just tapped into some of the things that I learned in in studying social work in in colleges. So, based on how well or how poorly the path that you've been on so far that is now hindered due to injury, depending on how well that's going, dictates what type of formula you need to take to make the next step, right? Or to, so it's, it, is it learn from it because it was a poor choice where you were heading before and this is a blessing in disguise or is it, that's unfortunate. You were on the right track and now it's cut short, and, but you got to keep your head up because there's something better on the horizon. So there's all kinds of stuff, man. I mean, I could, yeah, yeah, it's funny. You just asked that question and I don't even know if you're necessarily trying to tap into that, but um because I've been asked the question about what would you tell an athlete um, that gets injured and their career comes up shorter than they think it should have been. Well, you know, it's, Hey, you still got to enjoy that ride while it was there. There is still things you learn through that, that you'll be able to use forever. Yeah, right? right. Like, I mean, I use some of the mentality, some of the teamwork, some of the, the stick to uh, perseverance, a lot of things I learned in chasing my dream in baseball, I still use to this day in life. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of things that I could, uh, I could and would say to someone that is facing a tough time. You're not, you're not the only one. You won't be the first. You're not the first. And you won't be the last. Um, but you have an opportunity to, you know, pick up the pieces or figure out how to flourish from it. Right. And, and, and it's not easy. Um, and, and it doesn't hurt and really never really kind of stops hurting. If something gets taken away from you, it doesn't ever really go away. You just learn from it. And then ultimately years and years down the road, you end up realizing that there's blessings that came because of it. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't, I I'm certain that when I look at my 
my two kids, Baron and Grace, that if baseball would have went the same way, it would have went without injuries for me. I don't think those two little humans are in my life and I wouldn't trade that. So, you know, that's philosophical or however you want to look at it, but it's, yeah. it's truth. I just, my life would have been drastically different. And so there's just blessings around the corner, even if uh, it's in the midst of uh, kind of turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. But when I asked that question, I wasn't just thinking about sports. I was just about life in general. People, I know people for all sorts of reasons could not continue with the career they were path they had. And so I liked uh, your answer a lot. There's a lot there. And, and uh, you brought up a lot of stuff. Bucky, when you were at the Mariners, you, you played with, you know, of course, Edgar Martinez is in the hall of fame. You played with Ichiro, who's definitely a future hall of famer. Your hitting coach was Paul Malter a uh, hall of famer why don't you just talk about a little bit about those three gentlemen what what are some things that maybe fans don't know about edgar paul molitor and each other you can share something kind of interesting about those guys that maybe little nuggets maybe well i mean edgar martinez you know like i touched on earlier was just a childhood idol you know a hero of mine and um and then you you know i remember growing up and seeing the commercials that he was in right he was funny oh it's a light bat you know, everybody sees that. Everybody remembers, um, you know, interviews with him, and he always seemed so nice. Uh, oftentimes, people aren't like that. Um, Edgar is. Edgar's legit. That's Poppy is what he was called in the clubhouse. He is um, He's a genuine, nice dude that just so happened to be one of the best right-handed hitters of all time. I'll just – quick story on that is uh, – I, I got called up and my knee was jacked up. I was in need of surgery and yet I wasn't going to have it because I just got here. I mean, it took me forever to get here. I don't want to go on the shelf. And so I'm playing more often than not. And Bob Melvin, the manager says, Hey buck. So, or to actually pause for a sec. One day Edgar and I are taking ground balls at first base. And he says, um, I said to him, I said, Edgar, I just got to say something because it's like on my mind. Like when I come into the, into the clubhouse and I look at the lineup, right? Everybody goes and looks at the lineup. Some guys don't, I guess, if you just know you're going to be in the lineup no matter what. But I go in and look at the lineup. And when I see my name in the DH spot and you're not, it makes, there's a part of me that feels weird. Right. Like it feels, right. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like that's the way it's supposed to be. And he goes, sure. hey. Bucky, you don't worry about it, man. I've had a good career. And this is Edgar Martinez, obviously, his final year. And uh, and he goes, don't worry. I said, well, it just makes me feel, it just makes me feel weird. Just, you know, he goes, man, it's your time. You go, you do your thing. I've had a good run. He goes, don't worry. I, I'll be in the lineup plenty. Well, the next day was an off day, and I'm walking through a mall, and there's like a, one of those things called the Rainforest Cafes in the mall. And I look at the TV in there and I see Edgar Martinez and it says, Edgar Martinez retires. I'm like, what? I'm like, no, you know? So I go in, I'm like, can you turn that up? And he, I, I end up hearing him say he's retiring at the end of the season. Whew, Cause that's, I didn't want that to end me getting to play with my childhood idol like that. Um, and so at, from that point on, it basically, he got to basically make, the the exit the way that he wanted because at that point i was playing more than he was and yet then bob melvin comes to me and says hey we got to play edgar at home right i'm like of course and he goes okay can you play first 
he knew my knee was messed up. And I said, I'll play anywhere. Just put Edgar DH and I will play first. He goes, all right, well, if it gets too bad, just let me know. But we got to play Edgar at home and then I'll DH you when we're on the road. And I said, deal. And um, Edgar Martinez, he must have, Melvin must have shared that with Edgar. And then Edgar Martinez, he doesn't need to thank me for anything. Comes out and says, thanks. Thanks, big buck. Thanks, big buck. And I'm like, thanks for what? And he's like, you know, you could have caused a stink, you know, like, hey, my knee's not good and I need to DH and I've earned this. And I'm like, there's not a cell in my body that thinks that I earned being a, you know, being the starting DH for the Seattle Mariners when you're on the team. So, no, that, I didn't think that that at all. So, Ichiro, I've never seen anybody prepare more. Um, I can remember talking to him mid conversation right in the middle of a sentence and he just takes off just to center field. Like it was three 30 and that was his time to go do karaoke at the center field. Didn't matter if I was just telling him the cure for cancer. He was, he was out. Uh, and then barrel accuracy. I've never, I have a, I swung a pretty big bat and the, the margin of error on my bat, I would say was eight inches, maybe like where you saw seam marks and ball marks on my bat. Ichiro's was like the size of like a dime. Like it was, it was tiny. And so I've never seen anybody with that kind of barrel accuracy. And Paul Molitor, um, when, when you finally get to the big leagues, you know your swing better than anybody else does. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, you figure like a little league coach that really taught you some stuff. Like there's not drastic changes that need to be made. It's more fine tuning. It's recognizing trends. So I remember talking to Molitor about stuff that the big league pitchers would do that minor league pitchers could do, but weren't capable of doing or wouldn't commit to doing as long as a big leaguer. So what I mean by that is say there's guys at first and third base, one out Um, in the minor leagues, the lower minor leagues, guys don't come after you. He's like, I'm going to get this guy to hit into a double play. Or I'm going to strike him out and get the next guy to pop up. You get to double A, you're going to have some guys that understand. I'm going to throw sinkers, right? And I'm going to throw sliders. I'm going to throw pitches that are going to induce a ground ball. But if they can't locate those and throw them for strikes, they fall behind 2-0, then they're going to, they're going to give in and they're going to give you a pitch to hit. You get to triple A. You're going to have some guys that won't give in, but they don't have very good stuff. And so you can still capitalize on it. And you'll have some other guys that have good stuff, but they will give in. They don't aren't mentally there to play that game. And then you get to the big leagues and you got guys, you know, Jamie Moyer is a prime example of it. It could be three, one. He doesn't care. He's going to throw you a change up nibbling on the outside corner because you're still three, one as a hitter. You're going to probably move the bat because you're aggressive and you want to hit. And he's like, thank you. He'll use your tendencies against you. And, you know, I faced Aaron Seeley, and he threw me five different curveballs. Like, what the hell? Who has five different curveballs? Like, that's not normal. So there was things like that that a Paul Molitor knew and would recognize from his time playing, and he could see that I'm not recognizing it and enlighten me to, hey, he, he couldn't tell me, hey, Here's all the things that I learned in becoming a Hall of Famer that you haven't experienced yet. 
He couldn't do that. He had to wait for me to fail at it and then recognize it and then teach me the lesson, show me the lesson to be learned in that situation. And he was really good at that. You had a Hall of Fame hitting coach. Exciting. Love those, uh, those, some of those stories about those three aforementioned, uh, we'll call each role future Hall of Famer, those aforementioned Hall of Famers. Um, Buck, I've asked these two questions about every guest uh, last several years. Uh, who's a living sports figure you'd love to interview or have a conversation with? And who's a deceased sports figure in history, Bucky, you would have loved spending some time with and interviewing? Mm. Um. Hmm. A living one? Yeah, someone who's uh, yeah. probably Shaq. Shaq, yeah. And it wouldn't have anything to do with sports. Yeah, yeah. I just want to that dude seems um be a fun guy. Seems like he's got his head wrapped around a whole bunch of different issues and things that are even more important than basketball and and uh, to talk to him about that would be I think would be interesting. As far as a some of his deceased I mean, the easy answer I've heard is Babe Ruth, right? Like to sit and have a beer and a hot dog. But, um, sure. you know, um, I might go a little different. I, maybe Harmon Killebrew. Harmon Killebrew was a guy that I met one time when I was in rookie ball. And I didn't realize how lucky I was to have met him. Um, he ended up imparting some words of wisdom, like sign autographs we're nothing without fans that pay to see us. Right. Um, Great name. Yeah. And I, and, and it was one of those, like, I remember being kind of awestruck because I remember watching that guy play that old school home run derby. Remember the black and white nine innings, three outs. Right. And yet I didn't ask him about that. I remember one time when uh, I think it was Mickey Mantle um, came from behind and beat him. And I would love to talk to him about that because I'm sure he would have a really cool story of what it was like. Anyway, just some guys like that that were larger than life back before I was even around. You know what I mean? But they were just big, and and I got to watch the recaps of what it was like when they were playing back in the, you know, 50s, 60s, whenever that was. So Harmon Kilbury would be a fun one I'd like to go back. Great great deceased uh, Hall of Fame baseball player. I love that. Of course, Shaquille O'Neal is such a legendary living sports figure. You know, I, I when I ask that those two questions, I think about, you know, living and surviving. I'm sorry, surviving and deceased sports figures. I love to spend time with. What deceased sports figure in baseball who really interests me to spend time with is Satchel Page. Get his mm-hmm. take on the Negro Leagues and how he played in, in, in the big leagues at like age 59. I think Satchel Page would be a fascinating guy to spend some time with. I'm with you 100%. I yeah. mean, so I mean, I've thought many times, I've met some of the guys, the just the absolute, you know, legends of the Negro Leagues. Um, yeah. You know, some of the some of the guys, there was always be, it seemed like I played in the Southern League for a long time in in the minor leagues. I was kind of yeah. stuck in AA for a while. And there was always a game at a different historic field where we wore Negro League uniforms and which, by the way, super uncomfortable. All those old school, not Negro League ones, but the full wool uniforms. Sure. So these guys complaining about their uniforms nowadays in the big leagues. Save it. You're lucky we're not wearing stuff like that, right? But um, the I, what I would like is to talk to those, like to be able to talk to some of the guys, those guys. But even more than that, like if we could figure out a way to actually be able to integrate those eras, right? Because there's that conversation of 
Satchel Page, you know, to be able to see him in his day, it's that unwritten part of history that we just don't know about, right? We know what he did in, in the league that they had to play in. And then we know the players that were playing in the MLB at the time. And just if there was a way of really being able to put Satchel against Babe Ruth, wouldn't that be nice? You know, something like that. I mean, it, that would be great, you know. But he, so I guess even having a conversation with those guys and picking their brains about how they think that would have went would have been great. Uh, what's your favorite sports movie or favorite sports book? Uh, Bull Durham is probably my favorite sports movie. Um, hmm. I don't read a lot. Um, one of my favorite books is the is um by David Halberstam, a basketball book called The Breaks of the Game about the Portland Trailblazers. It came out in the early 80s. Anyhow, I, that's what hmm. I've always been. Yeah, I uh, I ended up having to read some book one time, uh, Who Stole My Cheese? Somebody was, I don't even know what that teacher or coach was trying to imply, that I was hoarding cheese or something. I'm like, <laughs> I don't really like reading this book, pal. <laughs> um, Bucky, you're, you, you, you're, a ho- you're a co-host of a morning show. Um, what is the most fascinating interview you've done? Or let me let me kind of rephrase that question. What's an interview you did where you learned something you thought was pretty fascinating or amazing? Something that kind of surprised you? I guess I'm asking a couple of questions within a question. What's the most fascinating interview you've done? Hmm. Man, there's a lot of interviews, especially right now. My brain's borderline mush coming out of spring training. I think we just interviewed just about every person on the Mariners. Um, team i'm trying to think because it's usually it's got to be something fascinating wise where it has some history you know we've, we've interviewed sue bird quite a few times right and just being who she is the legend she is a pioneer yeah. of sort is different i don't know for sure if i could think of anybody that i mean I've, I've interviewed people that i probably um was bigger fans of per se like sure. you know the sport they played or something but to think of, you know, we were just talking about a Harmon Kilbrew and Babe Ruth and to think of it as I've interviewed Sue Bird and the WNBA is really not that old and she's been sure. there from the beginning of it, right? I mean, from infancy to where it is now and it still has, you know, room for growth, obviously, but to be able to uh, interview somebody, there's really not another sports figure that I can think of that I've interviewed that was at the beginning. I mean, none of those people are alive. You know, I mean, none of the people that are alive that started at the beginning of the NFL or the MLB or even the NHL for that matter. So, uh, you know, she she would be one that I think would be fascinating. There's a fascinating side to it no for doubt. sure. No doubt. Actually, I had Bob Winston on, the former Sonic General Manager. He mentioned Sue Bird as the living sports figure he'd like to spend some time with. So she's oh, wow. a kind of figure. Um, I asked Dave Grosby this catch question a few years back. Um, what's a question you did not ask in an interview that looking back, you wish you asked it. Dave, when he responded, he says, you know, I had Don James on after he left the Husky, his Husky coach position. I probably should have asked some more specific questions about why he left. Can you think of something you didn't ask in an interview you wish you asked? Um, there's been a bunch of times where I interview somebody that just took a job, right? I mean, we just interviewed, um, 
you know, with new coaches that get hired, Jed Fish for the UW just got hired, or you know, McDonald for the Seahawks, or and there's something that is in the back of my head oftentimes that I want to ask, and yet I don't, I never do. Sure. How scared are you? Or how scary is that? Right? That change, because everybody knows what change is about, but rarely, you know, not everyone knows what it's like to have the change that you're going through be televised and sensationalized. Not not most people's choice to change jobs from, you know, working for Amazon to now I'm going to go work for Microsoft. There's not usually hundreds of thousands of fans that now are reliant or are going to judge you and have an opinion about it. So there's a, I know there's this doubt that comes into a lot of things, you know, and it's probably more conviction than doubt. Most certainly for, you know, competitive coaches are taking a job at the highest level, but there's fear, there's fear. And I, I've always kind of, it's always been in the back of my head, right? It's yeah. almost something I'm kind of listening for. And yet I'm never going to ask it probably. Like, yeah, right. But how scared are you to be the new head coach of this NFL team, right? Taking over Pete Carroll that had a 14 right. year career. So like, I'm never going to ask it. Right. Uh, because it, it's, it just is too pointed and it would sound wrong, but there's, right. there's a part of me that wonders it. Like I would, I'd love to sit and have a drink with that person and dive into that. I'm a really curious guy. But every so often, it's it, it's like an old saying. It's not it's not what you say; it's how you say it. Sometimes, but but yeah. Um, okay, who's a living um, sports announcer you'd love to spend time with, and who's a deceased sports um, announcer or broadcaster in history you would love, love would have loved to spend some time with? Um, for different reasons, uh, deceased wise, uh, Jack Jack Buck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the calls. There's something about the St. Louis Cardinals that growing up, you know, sure. it was Sunday night baseball and you just didn't, you didn't see every team all the time. And so when I remember hearing him, there was something, you know, I mean, Dave Niehaus is the best, right? He's my favorite of all time, but I know, I knew him and I talked to him. I'm this answer is about somebody I never met. And I never knew. And so it would be cool to have a conversation with him. Um, and living sportscaster, shoot, we have a lot of them on, right? Like I get to actually interview a lot of guys that um, Joe Buck is one that I've always enjoyed. I know he's kind of a polarizing figure. A lot of people hate him. I don't get why. He's pretty good. Um, um, Dave Sims uh, is a guy. guy. He's on my show a couple times. Great guy. Okay. Yep, Rick Rick Riz is um he's the summer of he's the voice of summer to me. You know, I, I just talked to hug both those guys today. And so it's some of my the guys I would want to, I actually get to. You know, I actually get to talk to him and hang out with him. He's not the wasn't the warmest or sweetest guy in the world, but Howard Cassell would have been fascinating to spend some time with. You know, so. Yeah, another fun one would have been Harry Carey, right? Maybe oh, yeah. not. Sure. I mean, I don't know how many beers you want to catch him before it gets sloppy, but somewhere along the line, there would be a happy medium that would be enjoyable. Bucky, can I end with a couple Mariners baseball questions? Let you go. Is that okay? Sure. Good, good. Before I do that, though, I do have one question for you about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Who are some players who are not in the Baseball Hall of Fame right now who you think belong there? Barry Bonds. 
Um, Barry Bonds, I so I played the game in the midst of the steroid era, and I didn't do it. And I mean, I would swear on everything about that. I didn't. Um, if I had, I might my bank account might look different. I will tell you that. But I wanted to be able to see if I could make it and and I wanted if I could make it and I did make it, I wanted to be able to know that I made it myself. Like it wasn't a cheat. And I just there was times where I was in some other countries playing winter ball and guys were just lining up on the training room table and I, they weren't getting B twelve shots, I'll tell you that. Um and I thought to myself, boy, that uh boy, I can't imagine being able to cork my body, so to speak, um, how far I could hit the ball. And yet I just knew that I'd never know if I made it on my own at that point. So I didn't. And Barry Bonds obviously did, right? He obviously cheated. But the thing is, is he's he was he was a borderline Hall of Famer before he did it. He watched a couple other guys, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, put on the show that kind of saved baseball in 1998. That summer of watching those guys and that home run race was one of my favorite memories as a baseball fan. Cheating or not, it was enjoyable to watch. And I think Barry Bonds, who was far more talented than both those guys, goes, hey, hold my beer. You know, hey, oh, oh, you guys like that, huh? And he took his supreme athleticism baseball talent and juiced it up and pretty much perfected hitting it's a thing that's impossible to perfect he pretty much perfected hitting i've never seen anybody do it the way he did power um ability to use whole field quickness fear and intimidation but still understanding the game so he had patience Stand on the dish. It was just dumb. You couldn't beat him with anything. It was, it was the most impressive thing that I've ever seen as a baseball player. Is those that little stretch of time when Barry Bonds was just absolutely juiced up. But what the show he was putting on uh, was unbelievable. And the thing that kind of flies in the face of those that don't put him in the Hall of Fame. There's people in the Hall of Fame that did steroids. Right. If you could tell me there isn't, then you could have this clear conscience and say, I can't put him in because he did steroids. Good point, buddy. But you did. You've already put people in that did steroids, whether you know it or not. You did. I can tell you that I know you did. And so I and and he also did that against a bunch of guys that did steroids. The the pitchers, they were cheating too. And so it, it, the, it was kind of an even playing field, so to speak. I mean, not for guys like me, <laughs> you know, yeah. and not for a whole bunch of the guys that didn't take them. We were competing against people that were cheating. But right. if Barry Bonds was cheating, he hit some home runs off some guys that were cheating. And Good point. So it was still a battle of whatever. I just – it's one of those – was he one of the better players in his era before he took steroids? If that answer is yes – then you can put an asterisk by it, but you can't deny the fact that when it was running rampant in the game, he was the best to ever do it. I mean, when it comes to who the, I've never seen anybody hit the way that he had. I don't think, I don't know if we ever will see anybody hit, will hit the way that he did. Bucky, you know, just putting on, if I can put on a legal hat for a second, his convictions were technically overturned too. 
just just food for thought. Mm. So yeah. just another little another little argument, I guess, for, for Barry Bonds. Right. Well, um you you follow baseball obviously more than I do. You know the sport better than I do. Um, but I kind of want to get your your pick your brain on this thought. So I look at some of these new Mariners players like Rayleigh, Polanco, um Haniger, uh, the new DH, I think it's Garber. Um, yep. It, it's it's a very intriguing team. And you look at the pitching staff. Um, is this one of the most intriguing teams, Mariners teams, you looked at in recent years to see if how well this roster comes together? Yeah. Yeah, it's very intriguing because it's, it's different. There's a lot of turnover. The team, you know, a lot of frustration with Mariner fans, understandably so. Um, but the ability or inability for some to separate season to season and most certainly, you know, chunk seasons, you know, this group of three or four years from the four or five years before, and that's different than the decade before and whatnot. But I mean, it's just a lot of times it's, you said you've been a fan since 77. So it means you've been a fan for the entire era of Mariners baseball. And most of it's been futile. Well, is that all Jerry DePoto's fault? Is that all Julio's fault or Ty France's fault or no? Like to me, it's give the blame where the blame is due the, to the degree that it's due. And this one last year was frustrating. You made the playoffs, broke the drought. And, you know, some of the moves they made in the offseason, none of them were splashy moves to improve the offense. And, and I said, and my partner said, and many people have said, that um, you, they were a bat short for sure last year, I thought. Well, you come up one game short of the playoffs um, and you never really addressed that. And, you know, some of the offseason moves, Colton Wong, who I didn't mind the signing, fell on his face, was the worst baseball player on the planet for some reason. Um, it just didn't work out. So you now have that all of the momentum of the the season that you make the playoffs and in the drought come to a screeching, crashing halt last year. And then I think there was some uh, restrictions put on them as far as what they could do this offseason by the owners and how much money they can spend. But they still had to address the elephant in the room, which was that offense was not consistent enough. So they did it in a very unpopular way, which was let the lovable Gino Suarez go because he was too much money and he also was bringing a lot of strikeouts, which they were wanting to get rid of. Want to figure out, not get rid of all of them. You can't, but minimize them, not offer to Oscar Hernandez, a, a new qualifying offer or a free agent contract. Cause he struck, struck out 200 times as well. So they had a plan. We're going to go, we're going to have to do this somehow. We're going to have to move money. We're going to not bring Gino back. We're going to trade him, get rid of that money, get rid of Marco Gonzalez, get rid of Evan white money. But now we can, give Polanco his money. We can sign Mitch Garver to some money. It's like this, you know, take money from here to put it over there, you know? And, but what they ended up doing was shifting the identity of, you know, you have your core nucleus, you have Julio, you have JP Crawford, you have um, Cal Raleigh and you have Ty France. That's your, your core young nucleus. Right. Um, and then it's like, okay, well now let's, fill in the rest of these pieces with the money that we just made or saved by getting rid of some beloved players. 
and get us some players in here that are pesky outs, that are tough, that grind ABs, that don't strike out 200 times. Because there was just far too many times they didn't capitalize on scoring opportunities. And so they revamped it. And so I'm very intrigued because you can revamp it all you want, but the guys have still got to go out and do it. And yet I just spent a week with most of these guys and they're hungry. They are hungry. The guys that were here last year are hungry. The guys that are new here this year can feel how hungry they are. So I'm intrigued. Yeah, I'm very anybody interested. Anybody you're watching this week, and for the listeners, Bucky's in Arizona watching the Mariners, covering the Mariners uh, during spring training for, for 93.3 KJR. Bucky, uh, is there any player in particular that, that um, could be a surprise? Maybe someone we're not talking about much that you're watching. Oh, that guy looks kind of good. Is there anyone out there right now that kind of – Well. I mean, there's the, you know, I would say the, I think Ty France, but that's not a surprise, right? I think Ty France, Ty France looks different. Ty France is in really good shape. Ty France went to driveline and did some work with his swing. Ty France put some work in, in the weight room. He looks yoked. He looks, he looks like he's ready to rebound from a less than his best year last year. Um, as far as other guys, this is a, straight long shot but i told sure. my radio partner chuck this a couple weeks ago maybe um was oh man i'm blanking on his name not bliss um ah, there's a dude in the minor league system that just stole like 80 bases last year um he's impressive this young guy my man yeah good yes i mean i'm blanking on his name right no, now because i've literally mentioned i've talked about baseball for 60 hours uh this week but uh um anyways it'll pop in it'll pop in my head right when we hang up no, but, no uh, regardless there, it, he's he's a ways away uh, most people are projecting him not to be here until 2025 or 2026 but the the idea of you can't teach speed and it's hard to defend speed and if this kid starts out in double A, hits, steals, goes to triple A, hits and steals, you know, I'm not hoping for an injury, obviously, but we do have some injury concerns with some of these players. And somebody pulls something, he might be a kid that I that comes up here and bursts on the scene a little bit sooner. And, you know, guys like that are exciting to watch. Very exciting. Chuck, you work with Chuck Powell and Ashley Ryan. Uh, can you comment on uh, working with Chuck and Ashley, and uh, maybe uh, feel free. I I don't. I've had Chuck on my show. I don't know Ashley, but I know Furness and Softy reasonably well, and Bucket and Jim Moore. Uh, just kind of tell us about the KJR crew um, a little bit, and, and specifically the the broadcasters you work with in the morning show. Well, Chuck, Chuck. Um, so I started doing radio about I don't know, shoot, twelve years ago, but it was just the post game show, and I started with Puckett just doing the Mariners post game show. So it was right up my alley. It was really easy. Jimmy's, right. And Jimmy's right. Yep. Yep. Go over to Jimmy's and, yeah. yeah. So I go watch a game and, and then wander over there and have a drink and BS about the baseball game. I just watched. It was really easy. That yeah. went away for a couple of years. I think they lost sponsorship or something that went away for a couple of years. And then when it came back, it was, sometimes Puckett, but more often than not, it was Chuck. Chuck was had just kind of came into town and maybe had been here for two or three years. Um, and uh, he just came in town and he was doing the post-game show. He's a baseball guy. He's a baseball nut. And um, so he was doing the post-game show, and then he and I are doing it together. 
And then he had actually asked, Hey, is this something you're interested in doing? Like you're pretty good at it. Um, I'm like, I hadn't really thought of it full time. It wasn't long after that, that, uh, that rich, our boss, rich ended up offering me the, the opportunity to do the morning show with Chuck. And I couldn't really ask for a much better partner to, to break me into the, um, the full-time radio business. Um, he's been doing it for 35 years. He's been everywhere. I mean, he was kind of on the forefront of the pioneering of, of, um, sports talk radio back 35 years ago in Vegas when there wasn't sports talk radio. He was one of the, one of the first ones to do it. And then, you know, just kind of a cutthroat business. And so he moved around and, and, you know, got hired away from different jobs to do other jobs. And he went into news and he did music radio and, but sports is, 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 is his love. And, and so he's found his way back to a heritage, uh, you know, station like KGR and, and I got the opportunity to the morning show and the morning show is not easy, but um, he's, he's about as professional as it gets uh, preparation and then tricks of the trade, just little things that What's you Ashley don't, like? you What's don't really know much about it. Um, I was just saying, he, there's just tricks of the trade that he's taught me a lot. And Ashley uh, actually has been in radio uh, longer than I have. Um, she's She started at KGR and then was like a traffic diva on KGR. And then um, she's got a great personality, great sense of humor, and super smart. She ended up getting a show over on, I think it was Warm 106 or something. And then that channel went south, the station went south. And so she had the opportunity to kind of not have to work for a little while and be a mom. And um, it just happened that when when that time was running thin and, and she wanted to get back into it, um, she became our producer and she's a addition to our show. Um, you know, not just the female point of view, a female voice. She's an athlete. She was a national champion, uh, water polo player at USC. So she gets compet competition, um, but it obviously is she can see things through a different lens as well. You know, there's 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 parts that she will recognize and and point out that that Chuck and I may miss. And so, um, I mean, it's she's got a great sense of humor. So it's it's just to me the last few years that we've been working together with with her uh, being part of it has been the best few years of the Chuck and Buck show for sure. Love it, love it. This might be my last question, Bucky, but feel free to add. I like to say to guests, anything I haven't brought up, uh, feel free to bring something up we haven't talked about today. But here's another question I have for you. The first part of this question is, should the Mariners go after Blake Snell, Corey Bellinger, and or Matt Chapman, who are prominent free agents? And what grade would you give the Mariners so far in their offseason moves? And if they were to sign one of the aforementioned that I just uh, threw out there, would you give them an A? <laughs> Uh, well, it would depend. It would depend on how much they signed him for. I mean, if you can give me Matt Chapman, third base is my biggest question mark about this Seattle Mariners team. Um, if you give me Matt Chapman for five bucks, yeah. If you give me Matt Chapman for for uh, $10 million for one year, yeah, A+. Plus. A++++. Plus plus plus. If you sign Matt Chapman or Blake Snell or to Cody Bellinger to uh, – $200 million contract for seven years. I'm probably giving all of them F's. So it's, and here's the reason why it's not because I don't like those players. 
it's because, and this is something that a lot of Mariner fans don't like to hear because sure. it involves patience. To, it involves saying, be patient to a, an organization that hasn't been to a damn World Series in 45 years, right? I get it. I'm a Mariner fan. I get it. But if you sign Blake Snell, for example, let's just say that right now he's asking for $35 million a year. Let's just say that he and Scott Boris aren't getting that because the market isn't going to pay him that. But all of a sudden he drops down. All right, Seattle, I'm from there. I'll do it for you guys for $30 million a year. And so you say, okay, seven years, $30 million a year, $210 million. Am I going to be pumped that John Stanton opened his checkbook and paid $210 million? Yeah. Do I think our team just got better? Yes. Is that the area where our team should have spent money? Probably not. You got the best rotation possibly in the game right now. But you can take Brian Wu and put him as an insurance policy in AAA starting, or you could you move him to the bullpen possibly. You, you would have just gotten better for sure. Here's the part that I don't like about it. Here's why it's an F. So two years from now when Cal Raleigh needs to be re-signed, if you can't re-sign him, that is part of the reason why. And when George Kirby needs to be re-signed and Logan Gilbert needs to be re-signed, you sign somebody to a super giant contract like that. If the owner has a budget and you blow that you blow that money, on Blake Snell, where you already is a strength of your team. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to lose some other assets that are cheaper now the second that you have to pay them. And I, I personally would rather have Cal Raleigh, a Mariner forever, than uh, effectively wild Blake Snell at the highest price after a Cy Young that you could possibly pay for a starting pitcher when we don't need one. So, I mean, it's just, I, I, it's, there's, to me, there's a part of me, and I'm not, this is not excusing ownership from not spending money. Chuck Powell, my, my, my partner on the radio, he, he said something, I think it was last year. John Stanton might not be the owner that you want, but I'm fine with that as long as he's the owner you need when the time comes you need it. Well, that to me was kind of, Last off season, right? Spend a little bit more money or the trading deadline, go out and trade and get somebody that maybe is going to cost more money. And then this off season with all the regional, the root sports stuff that's coming on and all that, where all of a sudden it seems like he's tightened up his purse strings. It doesn't seem like he's being the owner we need him to be. That's fine. If you're not going to be Stephen Cohen and, and spend, you know, if you're not going to be the Dodgers and go spend a billion dollars, I'm fine with that. I don't really care. We don't have to spend the most, but you got to do enough to, to finish off the rebuild. You got to finish it. You know, then that's where to me, like a Matt Chapman, Matt Chapman and his agent need to recognize you swing and miss a lot. That's the, the tide is starting to turn where running into 20 balls a year and hitting 210 isn't as, as good as somebody that can hit 265, hit 16 homers, and puts the damn ball in play more often than not, right? Like there's the tide's turning, starting to go back to old school baseball a little bit. So if they were to get him or he's like, wow, the market value is not very good. I guess people really don't. But you get that gold glove caliber third base with some danger in his bat 
and then you hide him in the seven hole down in your lineup or eight hole in the lineup, sign me up for that. It just has to be at a price that makes sense. That is what he's actually worth as a, as an overall, you know, ball player. To bolster share your points too, Bucky, a lot of these mega long-term deals don't always work out. Uh, you, you know, the Cano $240 million deal, it maybe the first four or five years, it was kind of working, but I mean, by the middle of that deal, the Mariners were lucky to get what they got from, weren't they, Bucky? <laughs> Yo, they, yeah. he couldn't sign that deal quick enough. I mean, it sucked to get rid of Edwin Diaz. And ultimately, a lot of people would say the Jared Kelnick part of it didn't work out. Uh, I think that that's just premature and moving on from him because maybe he was too much of a headache, right? He just His immature ways, maybe it was time for him and for the organization to have a change of scenery. But, yeah, to get out from underneath Cano, the, the, the thing, that was one of the later, maybe not one of the last, but organizations have recognized those deals are garbage, right? It's you have to pay somebody based on what they've done. But you, nowadays, like that one was, okay, Cano is an all-star. I'm going to pay him 10 years, $25 million a year, which is going to be paying him $25 million a year when he's 42 years old. Right. Well, right, he isn't going to be right. good for those last. So you were, well, the, the organizations, baseball owners and, and organizations smartened up and they thought, okay, we have to pay somebody based on what they've done, but we're also going to take away based on, how long we think they're going to continue it. And that's where the rub is. That's where the negotiation comes in. And so to me, it's, you should, if you're the best pitcher in the world or the best hitter in the world, you should be paid top of the line money. But if you're 33 years old, I'll be damned if I think you should be getting uh, a 10 year deal and getting paid all the way until you're 43. Bucky, real, real quickly. Uh, Robin Scano is a wealthy man. He's not going to be in the poorhouse or anything. But you think he's kind of a tragic figure in some ways with what's hap with, with what happened to his baseball career at the end? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's to some degree, you're right. I guarantee he's, you know, looks at his bank account on a regular basis and doesn't feel like it was too much of a tragedy. But if you were that guy, right, young guy coming up with the Yankees, learning, playing next to Derek Jeter, um, the, the world is your oyster, so to speak, get that big money. He was worth it the first couple years. And then all of a sudden started to fall off. And then all of a sudden gets dinged for PEDs. And then all of a sudden, I don't even remember where he was playing in the minor league somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really wish that on anybody because it can't be easy, right. For him to look in the mirror, even though, you know, I'm sure that he finds a way to smile through it with all the money in his bank account. Right. Right. Bucky, what a great uh, hour and change. I really appreciate you doing this, uh, coming on my podcast, Sports Untold. Just loved every minute of it. And I'll have you say goodbye to Olivia and uh, have a great uh, baseball season. I'm sure I'll see you down at uh, uh, Jimmy's at some point uh, down the road. That's where we met a couple of times. So I really enjoyed mm -hmm. uh, you uh, being so generous with your time today. 